0: This is a crowd podcast. We
1: didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.
2: Hello. Before we get into today's episode, Tom and I have a little message for you.
0: We certainly do, Katie. And the message is this. Our last competition went down so well, we're going to do another one. Mm -hmm. So this is your chance to win some merch And win big.
2: (laughs) This time we're asking you to spread the fire. All you need to do is go to our socials, Twitter and Instagram, and make sure you're following us at Spread That Fire, and then get creative. You
0: could upload a photo showing us why you love it, or where you listen to it, you could get a facial tattoo of Katie on one cheek and me on the other.
2: Mm, Which cheek? That's what I want to know. I would suggest perhaps an interpretive dance that you film. Just be creative because we're bribing you. I mean, there's a prize. We will pick two winners, our favourite slash the most creative or funniest fire spreader. Plus, there'll be a random winner as well because, you know, we're nice like that. Oh, we
0: have a Katie. These two lucky people will win, get this, our entire merch bundle. Let's go through that. One of Katie's legendary damp cloth utopia tea towels, a post especially signed by both Katie and me, a beautiful fire bookmark crammed with fire quotes and cartoons of our favourite fire lyrics and a silky soft T-shirt. In Your size. You can see all the designs at spreadthatfire.com.
2: Just make sure that you tag at spreadthatfire on Twitter or Insta and that you're following us.
0: The competition is open as soon as Katie makes this klaxon noise.
2: Kahuga!
0: <laughs> and you have got until Monday, the 13th of June. So get those creative juices flowing. Alrighty, on with today's episode. <laughs> Buddy Holly. Been her.
2: House of her.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 69 of We Didn't Start the Fire, a number one song that's become a podcast that's a history lesson about all the biggest, strangest, and most beautiful stories that shaped our world. Billy Joel drew our crazy route map. We just follow wherever it goes Cold War, hot movie stars, big dogs, dirty dogs, tragedies and triumphs. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm
2: Katie Puckrick. And
0: today, Katie, we are talking about something which goes on and on and on and on.
2: Are we discussing a film that I was forced to watch every (laughs) Easter? Oh, you too. Growing up in America, Ben-Hur. build somehow, within my own family at least, as a religious film. But Jesus is very tantalizingly and teasingly held just beyond our vision throughout the entire film. We see his toes, we see his lustrous locks from the back of his head, but we never see or hear him ourselves.
0: So Casey, this must be a Catholic thing because my first exposure to Ben-Hur would come at my Irish granny's house and my Irish granny and my mum would park themselves on the sofa every Easter to watch Ben-Hur. As a seven, eight, nine-year-old boy, I would go in to see what the exciting thing was on the TV, find myself unbelievably bored within about five minutes, go off and play for a considerable period of time, come back, film is still on, go off, come back and so on over the course of the entire afternoon.
2: I seem to recall you telling a very similar story regarding Bridge on the River Kwai.
0: (laughs) Plus, you could also include, if Billy did in his song, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers.
2: Why didn't Billy include Seven (laughs) Brides for Seven Brothers? If only Jesus had Seven Brides, then I would have been right up to that television screen, nose-pressed, leaving smear marks.
0: And, Katie, have you watched the film again?
2: I watched the film again, and I have a whole new perspective on the situation. As a child... My perception was that it was a film about religion, but what I now realize watching it is that Sunday Bible school and the very slapdash religious education that I received as a child did a lot of the heavy lifting in the plot because it turns out that the plot is really much more about oppressive colonial powers and kind of um boy-on boy love triangles a lot of that. yeah so um and other various geometric shapes I don't want to limit it to triangles but um yeah Jesus is very much just there as the umami in the whole story just to add a little bit of savory flavor
0: Casey I agree um I also feel having watched it uh, this weekend that rather than introduce our guest as usual we should just say the word over. Sure, And have some music in the background for 10 minutes as the film does, bafflingly, for so long at the start.
2: So long. So if listeners want to just turn on some gentle yet stirring, um, vaguely triumphant marching music in the background, (laughs) I shall now introduce our guest. She is back for the second time after our Bridge on the River Kwai episode. She is a film critic and journalist and the editor-at-large at Empire Film Magazine. Helen O'Hara, welcome. Hi, how are you doing? I feel very triumphant, <laughs> even without the background music. So um, I know Ben-Hur is a four-hour movie, but can you summarize the plot in 40 seconds? I, I can try.
3: So uh, Charlton Heston plays Judah Ben-Hur, who is a, a sort of Jewish prince. Uh, the country is under Roman occupation. and uh, he, But despite that, he has grown up friends with a Roman boy, called Messala um, but when Masala returns from Rome having now been appointed sort of military leader of Judea um, he's determined to crack down on the Jewish resistance Judah Ben-Hur is at least sympathetic to it if not an active part of it and refuses to help therefore they fall out judah ends up being sold into slavery slaving away on a roman galley um, he then uh distinguishes himself with some heroism uh gets freed gets elevated comes back to judea triumphantly to try and rebuild his life but finds himself once again in conflict with messala who he has this final confrontation with in a massive chariot race which is still up there with you know the fast and the furious as, as some of the best uh, action cinema in hollywood um and And in the background, as you say, uh, Jesus is going about, you know, preaching. So that's a thing that's sort of happening off screen for the most part. See,
0: Katie, um, with Helen having done that so um, well, I find myself wondering why it needed three and a half hours to do the the actual film. There's so much talk about here, Helen, but I feel we should start with one of the opening scenes Mm. once we have got the interminable overture out of the way. Mm. And this is the scene where Heston... Ben-Hur um, meets his old school friend Masala, which is one of the most homoerotic <laughs> scenes I've ever seen. Katie, which was the bit for you that stood out? Was it the handshake?
2: The hand clause where they touch each other's forearms and that's not and the grasp only... grasp them. <laughs> There's a lot of grasping of four mm. things and uh, um, it's, it's also the kind of the steamy looks that they're holding you know the overlong eye contact very
0: close i mean at one point i found myself shouting just kiss each other yeah Yeah,
2: just get a room guys And then
0: there's the bit where they decide to um to underline their friendship by both taking a spear Mm -hmm. from the wall and grasping a spear throwing the spear and the spear quivers
2: it's it's fine. It's not a metaphor <laughs> at all. Just relax, everybody. Just <laughs> relax. And if you're a bit aroused, then just try and splash some cold water on your face.
3: <laughs> yeah, it. I think it is meant to be there. So I was I was reading about. So the director was William Wyler, one of the greats of the Hollywood. Um, studio era frankly he'd been around for years at this point he would be around for more years to come but he wasn't quite sure how to inject human drama into this story so this is based on a book which was the best-selling novel of the 19th century it's a hugely hugely popular book it had already been adapted at least
2: twice by hollywood um the book was written by a civil war hero Yeah. Ben-Hur, The Tale of the Christ. I mean, like at one one minute, he's a, a union leader and the next minute he's writing all he's about written, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, I guess you you process
3: your war experience in different ways, but maybe that was his, I don't know. But yeah. but yeah, it was a massive, massive, massive bestseller. And William Wyler had actually worked on the original 1925 silent movie adaptation, which had also been like the biggest movie ever made in its time and it had also been a huge hit. So when it came to this, though, when he first got the script... He was like, you know, this is just cardboard cutouts of characters. There's no drama here. There's no interaction. There's no real character. There's just people who do things heroically or evilly. And he wanted to try and inject something. And Gore Vidal, who at that point was a studio writer, suggested, you know, putting in a little bit of a, a romantic undercurrent between and of course, these two. And
2: Gore Vidal was famously out as a gay man, yeah. which was very rare in that era, wasn't it?
3: Absolutely. So, so, you know, William Wyler denied. He said he'd never remembered this conversation. And, and Charlton Heston denies up and down that there was anything like that going on. Um, but at the same time, Gore Vidal said, no, we did have a conversation. It was quite successful. William Myler perked up audibly when I, you know, when I, <laughs> I pitched this idea... It's there on screen. I, I, love, like we I love this story.
2: It. Yeah, because apparently um, he told Vidal not to mention it to Chuck. He said Chuck will fall apart. <laughs> oh yeah, he would have. Yeah, yeah, he would. You know,
3: he was a small C, large C conservative man. So, but yeah.
2: my goodness, um, it, you know, forget the you know the coded gay film. This is minus the code. Masala is absolutely warm for Judah Ben-Hur's form. And later, Ben-Hur slave owner Quintus Ares lasciviously licks his chops over Chuck's abs on the slave galley and adopts him as his son. I mean, come on. There's all sorts of ways to get to the Pleasure Dome. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it, how much of
3: this there was in these ancient sort of sword and sandal epics. I mean, Spartacus very famously had a, a, a scene that was Massively gay coded. Um, Maybe it was all the short skirts and bare legs. You know, maybe there's something perspiration. There's a lot of sheen on on chest. Isn't it? You know, a lot of just naked male flesh in a way that you wouldn't see in other 1950s movies. Maybe I don't know.
2: I definitely want to come back to all this um, lickable fun, but um, (laughs) let's get back to the pacing. Why is it so? Ponderous. Did people note this at the time and just accepted it as this is absolutely fine? I was just wondering what was wrong with William Wyler. Did he not understand
3: editing? (laughs) I mean, he very, very much did. He was one of, like I say, he was one of the great Hollywood directors. What's What's weird and what's interesting about Ben Hur is that he was a darling of the kind of French New Wave and all the cool cineasts that were coming up. until Ben Hur and then they were like oh he's a hack after all oh he's just a populist you know so it was it was almost like you know their beloved art house director had suddenly gone and directed a Marvel movie you know and they were just appalled by him um but, but it's the same guy you know it's the same guy yeah. and he does have a, a, a very good grasp of what works in cinema I think what happened here was essentially he was trying to and I think he said this himself he was trying to out Cecil B. DeMille Cecil B. DeMille so he was trying to go
2: more epic yes. than anybody
3: out there was doing at the time but
2: does epic mean a wordless reaction shot that lasts a year <laughs> or you know sitting through somebody walking from the very top of a pyramid down to the bottom and that takes 17 hours hours? I mean, come on. It, it appears to, at least by the standards of the
3: 50s. I think, you know, there, there's a little bit maybe of context here from what was going on in the 50s, which is that they were suddenly feeling the threat of TV. It's kind of the same thing that's happening now. You know, the, the film studios have figured out that they are they are up against it right now. And the only way they can reliably make a lot of money, which is the only kind of money they want to make, is by making bigger stuff than TV can do. And that meant, in this case of the 50s, it meant longer. Right now it means more CGI usually. Mm. Um, but, But that's how you stand out. That's how you get people out of the house. And it worked. I mean, this was a massive, massive blockbuster. It won 11 Oscars. It just smashed box office records around the world people went and they, I guess, got up and stretched their legs during the intermission in the middle and didn't listen to the lovely music. But they went in huge
2: numbers. And what about this whole biblical epic genre craze that was going on in the 50s and 60s? Was that just kind of like the the true crime drama of the era? <laughs> uh, I guess it kind of was. Um, yeah, it was, it was
3: this massive craze. I think it was partly in reaction to things like the House Un-American Activities Committee. So you had this This terror of godless communism uh, in the United States at the time and this attempt to emphasize all American values. So Christian values, basically. So I think that was part of it. I think it also lent itself to these massive scale dramas that you couldn't get on TV. It was something that TV couldn't do at the time and i think it was also a weird you know one one is a hit therefore you make another one therefore you make another one you know it was just a, it was the superhero movie of the day yeah cuz he had the greatest story ever told the ten commandments and and, and even just the, the more general historical epic things like el cid and stuff as well it was you know it was the time of the big epic um because they could still go off and shoot fairly cheaply in europe they shot this in Cinecitta in Rome. Um, so that's the same place that they would later make Cleopatra, things like that. So it was it was a big, um, huge, huge, huge scale production. Some of the biggest sets ever made, th- literally thousands of extras. Mm. Um, but it was cheaper to do that in, in Italy at the time, which was very depressed economically, rather than in the US. Food's better too.
0: Let's go, Katie, through some of the numbers involved here because it shows how vast this <laughs> this set was. So the set cost a million dollars to make, 1,000 workmen spent a year carving it out of a quarry. They then used 36,000 tonnes of sand for the track. As you say, Helen, it took a year to plan. 7,000 extras. Um, it, it pays off, though.
3: It, it, does, pays it off. does pay off, yeah. And and even the bits, you know, they actually took a lot of that from history. They they started off with a quite historical place. They measured out the, the circus the right way. They also had a, a second track next door so the horses could practice. He also put in that sort of parade at the beginning where the horses all Which march. Which is super cool. It's so cool. It is so cool. They all march in perfect unison around the stadium It looks amazing. It's almost like one of those very soothing kind of Japanese rake
2: sand, (laughs) you know,
3: videos that you see, but with, you know, 78 horses or whatever. It's amazing.
2: Where did all of these extras come from? Were they just locals or were they peasants who were shipped in? I think, yeah, mostly
3: locals. I mean, they would just go to, you know, Rome and pick people up essentially and because as I say Italy was not in a good place economically at the time it was pretty cheap to get hundreds and thousands of extras there were stories though of, of um, money also just being thrown around so they'd gone out to you know a hill a couple of hours outside Rome outside the studio obviously to film I think it was one of the Jesus-related scenes. I think it was the one where um, uh, Judah Ben-Hur is being marched off to, into slavery and is, is given a little bit of water by Jesus, as it turns out. And there's a Roman centurion who orders you know, Jesus away and stop stop giving water to these slaves and, and orders uh, Ben-Hur back into line. Basically, the actor who was due to play that centurion hadn't turned up and they'd gone ahead anyway. And William Wyler was like, no, no, I, I cast that guy to play this tiny role and say this one line. And stopped everything until they could go back to Rome, find that guy and bring him back.
2: I don't know if it was really worth it. I mean, it's one line and a reaction
3: shot. So. And the reaction
0: is he just has to do the, a face which says, oh, my God, it's Jesus. But I don't know it's Jesus because he's not done the Jesus things yet.
3: Exactly that. It's it's a, it's hilarious. So British law, apart from anything else, pr- forbade you from showing Jesus. <gasps> Is what? that true? Is yeah, that what yeah. was going
2: on? I thought they were just being coy. I did, yeah. A I bit. thought they were just like, everybody has their own idea of who it is. Let's not ruin it. There is that as well. So there is yeah. a risk. Um,
3: I, I don't know about Jewish scripture. I certainly know in, in Islam, you're not allowed to show the prophets, mm-hmm. um, and which would include Jesus. Uh, you know visually you're not you're not supposed to do that as a, as a matter of law. Um, and so you would have to show Jesus from the rear you couldn't have him speaking directly to camera. but because what about that this?
2: What about this British law though? How did that even hit the books? I think they
3: were very, very scared of blasphemy essentially and they were they were scared of being done for blasphemy, so they just erred on the side. This was their compromise
0: So much for Ellen seems to be about shock and awe. So, the amount of money that goes into it, the size of the sets, the number of extras, the number of people making costumes, and then when you watch it, if you were in any doubt that you were meant to be blown away by the scale of it, there is a score which I'm sure at the time was an amazing score, but will not leave you alone. There are trumpets, (laughs) heavenly choirs, non-stop, there's barely a moment, silence.
3: Yeah, it is. Uh, shock and awe is exactly the right word. So the, the score was Miklos Roshka. I apologize if I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Um, but it was massively influential. I mean, for the next 10 years, you'd be hearing echoes of that. So that was the Hans Zimmer of the day. Or, or the you know. John Williams. Or the John Williams. Yeah. Yeah, very right. And yeah, it just the scale of it and the sort of the overwhelmingness was baked in and it was very, very deliberate. It was meant to to completely overwhelm you, it was always going to be a big picture. I mean, it went over budget, of course, it went well over schedule, uh, but that was because they were trying to make it the biggest thing ever. This was, you know, the Avengers Endgame or whatever of its day.
2: Talking about being overwhelmed and enveloped by sensory pleasures, uh, you were a little inundated with the music there, but I was quite delighted and captivated by Ben-Hur's wardrobe. What tunics, Mm. what textiles. House of Hur, indeed. Captain's turbans, shawls, worn fetchingly off the shoulder. Chuck was probably, you know, not necessarily on board with the homoerotic uh, overt tendencies of the film however he was happy in those little roman sandals
3: they they did work for him didn't they i mean i think i think what they did was they tried to find a way of looking roman but also giving it something we maybe hadn't seen before and and it was in those colors and those textures and just the sheer weight of it yeah it was um elizabeth haffenden who was the costume designer who also did a man for all seasons and Mm -hmm. uh fiddler on the roof um but i think i think it is It is pretty spectacular that way. And also, they managed to kind of link the the Roman stuff and the biblical stuff. So, you know, if you think about biblical images, you think of those longer robes, whereas the Roman tunics tended to be sort of the knee length, you know, certainly of the the soldiers tended to be the knee length length. More
2: insouciant. Yes, exactly.
3: So I think they, they find a way to kind of blend those two together and make it work. And I mean, they kind of had to. There was a there was a famous story that Paul Newman was actually offered the role of Ben Hur oh. and didn't want to do it because he didn't want his legs out. He he had had he had done a Roman <laughs> epic. He didn't like the way he looked in a skirt. He didn't think he had the legs for it. You, you know. know,
2: not everybody can carry off a Roman mini. <laughs> Let's talk about who else was considered for Ben-Hur. So uh, Chuck wasn't the first choice, Charlton Heston.
3: No. Well, William Wyler was famously indecisive, actually, and he wanted to keep his options open. And he actually wanted uh, Charlton Heston to play Messala. Oh, the bad guy. Yeah, he wanted him as the bad guy. And William Wyler, to his credit did question Heston's performance. Oh, okay, a good. A lot. In the, and, and just told him, you, you, you need to be better. And, and Heston was like, in, in what way? Like, can you give me some direction? Yeah, and, can
2: you please try to be less crap? Yeah, and Wyler was like, yeah, just just be better. I tell you what, if the role just called for teeth gnashing and grimacing, he's well in there. He loves
0: to grimace, doesn't he? he, he? Lo- the number of times, Katie, where we just oh. see him emoting, where he's just trying to look really troubled in the way that Joey Trebbiani does when he's doing that sums thing. <laughs> And he and he does it for a long time. He doesn't let an emotion flicker across his face, no. does he? He holds it for as long as possible.
2: He's, there's a lot of indigestion acting. <laughs> I mean, in his defence,
3: you know, his mother and sister are firstly falsely imprisoned and then contract leprosy and are basically falling apart in front of him, which, which I guess would be would be traumatic. But
2: um before they yeah. fall apart in front of him and get all scabby, the women are looking lovely in a very fifties way. Mm. There's a lot of bright coral lipstick.
0: Of lipstick it, isn't yeah.
2: in, in ancient Israel there's a bullet bra foundation mm. garments like thrusting underneath those tunics um i like it
3: i mean yeah it's it's one of these things which uh, look a lot of historical epics do where they choose the bits of the historical costume that are palatable to the modern eye and lean into those and then just make up the rest you know it's like elizabeth taylor a few years later doing cleopatra you know she could walk into any nightclub in the 60s in some of those looks and <laughs> be absolutely accepted uh, and i think there's there's a little bit so something similar, especially with esther who has who definitely has the conical bra
2: yeah so esther the slave girl who has the hots for her master ben hur Did anybody at the time pipe up that Charlton Heston has zero sensuality and, in fact, can't act? Um, Because Masala is quivering with man root palsy over Ben-Hur and Charlton returns the favor by standing there like the world's most inexpressive tree. And then if you want to see glacial emotional responsiveness, the the scenes with Hatsi Tatsi slave girl Esther are just, you know, she's offering her best voluptuous pulsations And they're going in for a smooch, but it's like hugging a door. He's just (laughs) like open, closed, strictly two-dimensional. Did anybody find this lacking, or was that just the 50s idea of hot guy.
3: I think that was the 50s idea of hot guy. He won best actor. That's um, amazing. This was one of 11 Oscars that the film won. A, a record number. <sighs> it's now been tied since by, by the Lord of the Rings and I think by Avatar. Um, but but 11 Oscars still remains the high watermark of, of any film ever. The only one it didn't win was best screenplay. because there was And the reason they say that it didn't win is there was a bit of controversy over who got the actual credit. So the original writer Whose work had almost been entirely rewritten by First Gore Vidal and then Christopher Fry was the one who ended up with the credit and therefore the Oscar, or yeah. Oscar nomination. And um and you know William Wyler was pretty outspoken about the fact that he didn't write the script.
0: So, Katie, we have piled in to Ben Hur, but we should flag up two scenes which, having rewatched it, still stand the test of time and are also the ones that, when I watched it all those years ago uh, with my gran and my mum. The two scenes that where I would definitely come in to watch it. Scene number one, galley battle.
3: Galley battle. So the
0: galley, ba- the galley battle. Um, and I remember being fascinated uh, by this as a kid, Helen, because you've got all these um, men chained to um, the boat and then you've got basically the DJ at the front who's setting, <laughs> the, te- setting the tempo. <laughs> and they go through the gears don't they they go they, through the gears they, right. they have they have ordinary speed then they have battle speed <laughs> Bom bum bum bom and then they have what's the next one is ramming
2: it, speed ramming speed is there attack speed
0: first before oh, ramming speed I'm trying to remember God. how yep. the gearbox works yeah yeah <laughs> but the, guy, the, the DJ at the front bum 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 speeds up and everyone's straining and straining
2: I loved ramming speed <laughs> I, I, I want I want the master mix of that one <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah that that is a pretty cool scene I have to say and and the the way they combine you know the miniature work of all these different ships uh, and and then the, the sort of the you know internal shots of of Ben Hur at his at his oar uh you know that that looks really, really cool. even today it's not badly done. you know you can tell it's miniatures, obviously, but it's it's pretty impressively put together. And that is where you see William Wyler could cut, honestly. He can, I promise. He just didn't cut enough from this film.
2: Oh, come on. That scene went forever through all of the gear shifts from uh, ordinary speed to thrust ramming speed. (laughs)
0: The other problem, Katie, is that every time something starts happening, someone has to take off a breastplate and put on a cloak or vice versa. (laughs) There is
2: an unbelievable
0: amount of just going to loosen this heavy piece of metal. (laughs) (laughs)
2: It's so true. There's like, you know, corsets and straps and chains and buckles. Yeah, it's very fetishy, that gear. Yeah, hats. Lots of hats. Toilet brush, uh, Roman... uh, Mohican,
0: punk Mohican. Yeah, punk
2: Mohican. Like, cool looks. Very fetishy. That's really
3: weird that you say that because apparently one of the first questions that William Wyler asked Gore Vidal was, when a Roman sits down, what does he unbuckle? Oh, so when he like you know sits down to like chill out, yeah, sits yeah. Back, when he... he's gotten home at the end of the yeah. day, what does he unbuckle? And the answer is all the things you've just mentioned,
0: because
3: <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to give it that sense of like lived-inness, like not you know, they're not just sort of standing stiffly on parade. Yes, you know they're they're kind of lounging around their houses or whatever. So what is it that they
2: kind of yeah. take off
3: when they get home from work?
2: Well, I can see the advantage to having a very long and unedited scene inside the galley, because basically it's a hundred men in loincloths sweating. And they're
0: ripped as well, aren't they?
2: Pretty gosh darn ripped. Pretty gosh darn ripped. And uh, of course you have Arias there at the front sort of licking his chops. He's the commander of this mission. And he's sort of looking over the scene and his eye alights on Ben-Hur. And he thinks... That guy's got a little bit of fire in the belly, <laughs> and then goes to the trouble of making sure that Chuck is unchained, unlike the rest of the slaves. Which means that he, in turn, can rescue Arias when everything comes a cropper in the middle of battle.
3: Yeah, exactly. Because they were chained to the galley, so if the galley went down, that was that was extremely bad news for the slaves. Yes, it was. They couldn't get out. So. Um Yeah, and and I think there's there's quite a good scene after he rescues him where Arius tries to commit suicide, sort of, you know, he's been dishonoured in loss, he believes, so he thinks there's nothing left for him but to honourably commit suicide on the battlefield, and, you know... Judas stops him, and I, I think that was quite cool. I did like his acting in that scene. Um,
0: homerotic again, though. I mean,
3: homerotic again. Of a lot all grappling yeah. with yeah, chains. There was. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they when they actually do get rescued, and he find out finds out that the battle was won, even though he lost pretty much the entire fleet. Um, you know, Arius is uh, once again staring manfully at. Uh, There's
2: always stuck. a lot of manful staring. Yeah.
0: He also has that scene slightly earlier in the film where he um, Arius is in his cabin I suppose it is or his quarters mm. and and Judah Ben-Hur comes in naked except for his loincloth and he's sort of startled as if he's awake from a particularly erotic dream and says what are you doing here
2: <laughs> I was just thinking yeah. about. oh no is this I the mean, dream I...
0: or the, it's reality <laughs> oh my god <laughs>
2: I was quite exercised by this. Uh, I was a, a bit a froth by this film, I can tell you what. It certainly gave me my marching orders towards um, being a, a gay man in the mid-50s. It seems like it would provide a lot of material for one's quiet moments.
3: <laughs> I think it probably would, but but that's the genius of it, isn't it? That it sort of,
2: you know, caters to that demographic, also caters to your Catholic grannies. There is a lot of crossover between the connoisseurs of the meatpacking district and Catholic grannies.
0: Who knew, Katie? Who knew? <laughs> so, Helen, we have that one amazing scene in the galley, and then we have the scene—the
3: chariot race.
0: Wow! So, watching this again, yeah, it's still incredible. It yeah. blows your mind.
3: Yeah, and and it should do. I mean, it was you know it was designed to. They knew this would be the big signature piece of the movie. They shot for, I think, um, five weeks total over a month, but they trained for months before that. So both Stephen Boyd and Charlton Heston essentially learned to charioteer.
2: I was wondering about that because it's definitely them, and I couldn't believe it because they're both driving these four abreast horse chariots. Yeah. I mean, it's dangerous. It is dangerous.
3: I mean, yeah. no, they, they didn't do obviously all of the stunts, but they did way more of them than you think they would do. They really did. So um, Stephen did get dragged behind the chariot. They, they put sort of plate uh, plate metal around his torso to keep him safe. There is an absolutely spectacular shot. So um Masala has manoeuvred things so that Judah is on the inside of his chariot, so he's on the inside lane, and there is a wreck up ahead, and and Judah's about to have the choice of either stopping and falling back and losing his place in the race, or speeding up across this wreck and risking disaster. And what he does is his horses jump the wreck chariot, and then his chariot kind of goes up and and bounces over as well and he is thrown over the front of the chariot onto the horses, uh, the bit that holds the horses. Yes, uh, So Rivals. they did that for real. Now his stunt double who was the stunt coordinator's son was actually thrown over the front of the chariot and initially they were like oh well, we won't be able to use this because my god you know that was a terrible accident he could have been really hurt. He wasn't, he was fine uh, the, the the myth about somebody being killed during the chariot race is a myth Okay, um, at least for the 1959 film but then they, they had to match it up, so they had Charlton Heston climbing back into the chariot to show that you know he, he gets over that accident. So, wow. so they cut that together really, really cleverly, but that is real footage. And it was an incredibly difficult scene to film because they had these massive, massive new cameras. There were six in the world at the time. Five of them were being used on Ben-Hur. Right, that this is the the kind of scale we're talking about. Sixty five millimeter cameras, um, and they to even film the race, they had to get a, a an American car in that could accelerate faster than the horses in order to give them enough time to get a shot along the straight um, of the circus. It was. Just It's monumentally difficult to do, just technically, but also just the storytelling through it, I think, is really impressive. You can actually tell where Ben-Hur is, where Masala is, who's winning at this point, where in the race we are. You know, th- it's very, very well cut together. What's weird, Well, what I didn't realise before, reading up on this before this, was that um, Ben-Hur, after it was a novel, before it was a film, was a massive stage hit. And yeah. they used to have the chariot race done on essentially giant treadmills across a stage.
4: Oh. Um, wow. Which,
3: you know, so you've got to measure up to at least that level of what the heck, yeah, <laughs> in order to get audiences on board.
2: So get a load of this: the role of Jesus was uncredited, but it turns out that he was played by a fellow named Claude Heater, who was a Mormon opera singer. Oh. <laughs> so cool, and he was touring Europe at the time. And He they found, he's an American. They, it was just yeah, happened to be in town. Yeah,
3: apparently they liked his hands. They thought he had good solid carpenter hands? I don't know, but they liked his hands.
2: But what about that hair?
0: The hair is very sort of early deep purple.
2: It's very (laughs) wig-tastic is what it is. It's like the finest acrylic, entirely flammable if you ask me. Yeah, the this this is also dealt with if anybody out there has seen
3: the coen brothers hail caesar it's one of my favorite films of the last 10 years but there's a they're making a biblical epic very very much on the ben hur lines and there's a whole controversy and discussion in that about how they are not going to show jesus's face okay um and i think it's it's all part of this ridiculous um yeah attempt to av- to tell biblical stories but also not Full file of blasphemy laws.
2: I like how all the bad guys have British accents. I mean, mm. that's just classic Hollywood. I might be overthinking this, Tom and Helen, but it, it seems like the plot is mainly focused on the sadistic oppression of colonial powers. And I wondered if that was something that was layered on, kind of schmaltzed up uh, to comment on Cold War era colonial struggles, uh, or is it just people can't get enough of Jesus, let's just do a Jesus movie?
3: Yeah, I think I would like to think that they were thoughtful about the anti-colonialist message, but I, I don't think they were because okay. I don't think there was any kind of self-reflection about Western powers in general being also colonialists by this point. You know, I think I guess the Americans would still, at that point, have seen themselves as the victims of colonialism rather than neo-colonialists, maybe. So there might have been an element of that in there, and certainly that would tie in with casting the the. British as the kind of Roman aristocracy.
2: Right, yeah. I
3: mean, that's about the one good thing you can say about it. The problem with it having an anti-colonialist message is you also have a white Welshman um, in brown face, which is extraordinarily uncomfortable to watch now.
2: It's really weird. It's such a weird color brown that this this turbaned shake has on his face. It's sort of like olive green. It looks like it's continually
3: melting off him. It's a very, very bad bad decision it's really terrible
0: the final scene helen is pretty graphic i mean we know we're going to see a crucifixion and we are aware of what crucifixion involves but the sky turns black the heavens open there is quite a lot of gnashing of teeth before a leprosy-based miracle occurs
3: yeah it's weird because i hadn't seen this in years until i rewatched it uh, this weekend and I had forgotten how how long that goes on for. It's a really oh. long scene. Oh. And there's no actual, you know,
2: kind of moment of cure. There's no sort of Yeah, this is the mother and daughter we're talking about. Yeah. And it it's like it's so extreme. It's shot like a horror movie but without any momentum. Um so there's this like weird hyperlit darkness. Close ups on their scabby faces. Lightning yeah.
0: flashes. Lightning, Lightning flashes.
2: Yeah. The blood is dripping down from Jesus' cross as he's being tortured to death. And then it's like you just have to infer that bloody Jesus juice drips down to the plague pit and like drips onto their superating wounds and cures them. Yeah, I guess. I mean, there's rain.
3: So is the rain the miracle? Like, I, I don't know what's meant to be.
0: I thought it might be a delayed miracle though. because um, Heston Ben Hur. Mm. Charlton Heston returns the favor. Mm. Having been given water by Jesus when he is a slave and they're going past Joseph's carpentry workshop, which I'm sure is not the correct technical term for the time. um, He finds Jesus stumbling and gives him water. So I wondered if Jesus sort of logged that mentally and then repaid the favor an interminable period of time later.
2: (laughs) This is how you get into heaven. This is the message, isn't it? It's like you have to do some good deeds and you have to like build up your credit rating and then that's how you get a miracle, or get into heaven.
3: Yeah, I mean, they do go out of their way to show Ben-Hur is a good man, so he keeps trying to do the right thing. But, um, But it's also weird to me how they try and fit it around... You know, like the, the Catholic stations of the cross, for example. So, the you know, the, the Bible is quite clear on all the beats that happen between Jesus being arrested and being put on the cross. And there are specific people who come in at various times <laughs> and do various things. So the book is trying to, like, fit itself in around that. You know, there's the bit where um, Ben-Hur tries to go and help lift the cross um, and he's and he's blocked and he's thrown back by Roman soldiers. So it's a different man who gets, who, of course, is in the Bible, who gets, isn't it Simon? I forget. Anyway, yes, Simon. Who gets, who gets brought in to actually help carry the cross. But, you know, he tries. He wants to help. He's there. The intention is there. Yes. So they're always trying to kind of fit it around and, again, avoid blasphemy while also trying to tell this. Oh, that is so tricky. Story. That
2: is just like a sphincter tightening exercise all the way <laughs> through. And speaking of this sort of biblical shorthand and kind of doing little shout outs to uh, the boldface points in the Bible, there's the, another scene where Pontius Pilate and we just catch him finishing off washing his hands. So... Uh, Strangely, William Wyler does not feel compelled to make us sit through an hour of Pontius Pilate deliberating what should happen to Jesus and what his fate should be. No, he just trusts that the audience understands that this shit went down. Mm. Uh, Meanwhile, we have to watch Esther walk down from the top of a pyramid shaped house for an hour to get to the courtyard. So I don't understand how the director made his choices. However, um, the whole point is he needed to maintain this reverence. And speaking of the reverence, I read, Tom, that um, at the beginning of the film, there was a decision made that the MGM lion should not roar. (gasps) <gasps> because the first thing you see in the film is little baby Jesus in a manger and three wise men following the star. So they just thought Leo the lion should not do an aggressive roar. That seems like maybe
3: overthinking to me, given that there was like a
2: 20-minute overture in between. But <laughs> That's <sure>. true. Okay. <laughs> and I don't understand if we are going to be so gosh darn reverent, then this scene at the end with um, – you know the horror film look.
3: Yeah, I guess you're meant to take from. I mean, look, the the sky turning black and stuff is in the in the Bible, isn't it? But I I think that you're meant to take from it that final miracle and the sort of just the very very final shot I'm of focusing on the wrong hugging. thing Helen everybody <laughs> hugging they're everybody hugging it hugs. out <laughs> it's fine because everybody hugs at the end you know but uh, yeah it doesn't because it, it doesn't wait three days for them to hug you know there's no, no sort of delay there until the Sunday is there boy I tell you what when William Wyler wants to make an edit he <laughs> will make an edit it's, it's weird I mean look they, they did do a remake of this in 2016 and it was only just over two hours sensible it could be done quicker if they wanted to I'm just
0: So we find it overlong and stagey and slow and laughable in places, Helen, but at the time it knocked people's socks off.
3: Yeah, it really, really did. So uh, I think 1958 had been the very first year in history that MGM had ever lost money. And, and this put it right back in the black. This, this was a massive, 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 massive hit around the world.
2: And um, everybody involved got quite rich, quite frankly. Speaking of money, the Ben-Hur merch afterward, it Not apparently yet. generated another $20 million from uh, books, toys, candy, perfume, neckties... Jewelry gowns, chariot-shaped tricycles, which I would love one of those. I would love one of those. Amazing. And Ben her, and Ben his bathroom towels, Tom. (laughs) That's my favorite. So not so reverent there, I suppose. No, I think I think I think there's
3: a there's a limit. Look, I mean, you know, you go to like lourdes or somewhere and you see the the tat on offer. I think certainly.
2: Oh, I went to Jerusalem once, and uh, you could buy a crown of thorns. At the wow. at the souvenir stand. Okay, that's pretty. I mean, along I, the Stations of the Cross. I used yeah. to have
3: I used to have a bit of a competition going with friends about who could find the, the <laughs> tattiest tats mm-hmm. in in these places. And uh, I I've 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 heard of I have not seen with my own eyes, but I've heard of a cuckoo clock where the Virgin Mary pops out <laughs> every hour, being sold in Lourdes. And I've also heard of and I'm not sure I believe this because I've never found a trace of it a frying pan where instead of those, you remember those red spots in the middle of a frying pan, which yes. would show up when the, the, the temperature was a right? a certain level. Again, the, the Virgin Mary would appear instead of the like
0: red spot. It's a miracle. Is like it a a miracle, miracle?
2: She pan. is hot, is what that means. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Katie, do you feel we should be recommending Ben-Hur to listeners of We Didn't Start the Fire who maybe haven't seen it since their childhood? Or do you feel that we went through that particular process so people don't have to?
2: I think that people should watch it again because it's so weird. Like, the pacing is so weird. Um, and then the contrast with the the two scenes that you mentioned that are so extraordinary and dynamic, which are the Roman galleon battles and, of course, the chariot race. I think that you, those are unmissable. It's very enjoyable also just to experience the film thinking what people from 1959 would have been thinking as they enjoyed the bright orange lipstick on the slave <laughs> girls and the— conical bras. Also, the cultural impact of the movie is fun to think about, even as you're watching it. Because I, every time I saw a a saggy faced, big schnozzed old guy in a toilet brush Roman helmet, I kept thinking of carry on Cleo, Sid (laughs) James. Um, it, It just sort of made me giggle. So
3: Masala's buddy in the very first scene of the movie Looks like Graham Chapman from <laughs> yeah. Monty Python. Yeah, and I, he does. And I genuinely, I, I, <laughs> I, have not talked to any of the Pythons about this. I've never interviewed any of them, but I am convinced that seeing that on some level, whether conscious or subconscious, you know, inspired them to make um, the Life of Brian. I would, I would absolutely recommend this to people on the condition that they watch it in a triple bill with the Life of Brian, and also with Hail Caesar, which I think is, is magnificent as well. So, but, but I, I would put it in that context.
0: Hello, Nohara. Thank you once again for enlightening us about the world of film and...
2: And also thank you for allowing me just to wang on about my problems. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to do with the film. Absolute pleasure as always. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Tom, I thoroughly enjoyed this discussion of Ben-Hur and it's made me fall in love with the film.
0: You've been converted, Katie.
2: I've been converted. It
0: also made me remember, Katie, another very tangential Fordyce connection to this, which is we've talked in previous episodes about some of my dad's favourite stories involving Dancing with Judy Christie, etc., yes. etc., et and becoming friends with a young Jean-Michel Jarre.
2: Oh, he gets around your dad.
0: How have I forgotten this one, Katie? What? There is a follow-up film, if you like, to Ben-Hur, called Barabbas which is made in 1961 and stars Anthony Quinn.
2: Remind me who Barabbas is again.
0: Barabbas, Katie, is the man who gets the winning lottery ticket. So when Pontius Pilate says to the crowd, would you like me to save Jesus of Nazareth or Barabbas, Barabbas gets saved. The crowd shout back Barabbas. One of the crowd, Katie, shouting Barabbas, is my
2: dad. What? Yeah.
0: So as he tells the story, he was on holiday in Italy and was skint because he's in his early 20s, saw a bit of work going, turned up possibly wearing his Michael Caine black-rimmed glasses, was given a very basic costume and had to shout, Barabbas!
2: Hopefully, after taking off as Michael Caine bends Possibly
0: or possibly not.
2: Well, listeners, if you still have some gumption in you to listen to another podcast, although I don't know, this was a little bit of a biblical epic, you can check out Death of a Film Star. It's all about the film stars we lost too soon, their lives, and they're often... Tragic deaths.
0: Katie, this is narrative storytelling at its most immersive. It's the story of Rock Hudson, of Carrie Fisher, of Marilyn, and of Chadwick Boseman. I'm a bit biased, Katie. I wrote some of
2: these scripts. <laughs> you can search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. And what do we have coming up next week, Tom Fordyce?
0: Katie, it's an absolute banger. It is Space Monkey. <laughs> Crowd Network, a place where
1: you belong. Hello, this is Gary Chahot, welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that.
4: I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.
1: Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.